times in anticipation of fall. You know, I think about the, the kids as we get them ready each morning and off to school and are having to make sure is this late football practice day, is this baseball practice day, when's piano lessons, and so you're in that mode, you know, where you're always racing somewhere. And I think about such a simpler time when I was in school and not involved in anything, you know, as enjoying my the, the frolics of childhood, but one of my favorite subjects in school was geometry. And so I have some really great memories of Mrs. Castile and the way that she was able to impart her wisdom of, of parallel lines and, and angles and, and similarity and congruity and trigonometric ratios and right triangles and Pythagorean theorems and, okay, I've run out of Google terms. All right, Claudia, I, I know none of what it that is, but I Googled all of that. So, and by, not only that, my mother's about to fall out of the seat because I, I X-word geometry. And so I'm helping you parents out, right? That's as far from love as you can get. That's how I felt about geometry. It caused me, almost caused me, to have to repeat the 10th grade. If not for a parent conference, I would have had to repeat the 10th grade because that's when my parents found out just how much I love geometry. But there's one thing I remember is that 360 degrees makes a full circle. So I remember that, or I picked it up somewhere. So that is, when we start at one point and we go all the way around, we end up at the same point, right? So we call that a circle. 180 degrees is half that circle. So you start at one point and, and one end, and you go around to the, to the exact opposite end. And so now you could circle back around. And you could reach the opposite position. But the other thing I learned in school is that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And so if you make an about face and turn around, it will point you in the direction to reach the opposite point in the shortest amount of time. And so Scripture uses a word to describe this very factual reality. This is, it does so in terms not of distance between two points, but in terms of change and changing in the direction of your life. And so, Scripture calls this repentance. Repentance. And so, in Luke chapter 19, we read about how Jesus, at the end of His ministry, traveled through Jericho. Now, it wasn't Jericho as the Old Testament Jericho. It was, it was close by, in proximity, the same name. And so, the same memories uh, would, would, would roll through people's heads. But He was he passed through this city called Jericho, on his way to Jerusalem. And so verse 2 tells us in Luke chapter 19 that now a man named Zacchaeus was there, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And so I want us to understand the, the significance of Luke's description here this morning because tax collectors or toll collectors were employees of the Roman government. The Romans were in charge of everything right now. And everyone exported these Tax collectors, right? They could not stand these people. They loathed them. And so the, the, the amount that they were supposed to collect, they were assigned a, a region, an area of, of, the, of the Roman province, and so they were to collect taxes in that area, much like we would think about a county tax collector in our day and time. And so the Romans would designate a number, a numerical value to that particular part uh, of, of their kingdom. And so they would expect this amount of money based on how many people lived in that particular area. 
But as you can imagine, there was great room for abuse because anything above and over that required amount, the tax collector puts in their pockets. So as long as the Romans received what they were expecting, they didn't care what the tax collectors charged. And so this great market value, these folks were getting so rich. And it's also why you find in the Gospel so many times where tax collectors are grouped with sinners. They're grouped together in the same sentence. And it's also why Jesus would make hard points saying that tax collectors would enter the kingdom of heaven before the Pharisees would. That's how bad he wanted the Pharisees to understand they were. Because they were even worse than the tax collectors. And so they were despised. And in their day and time, in the eyes of the society, they were hated. These people were. And so these were people for whom there was no hope, right? And so especially a Jew. A Jew who was working for this dirty Roman government. Betraying their own people. And for good reason. Because you could assume they were rich. It went with the territory. And so, no matter how unscrupulously they obtained it, these were wealthy people. And so it's interesting here how Luke feels the need to tell us that Zacchaeus was not only a tax collector, but he was also rich. And so I'm thinking that should be understood, right? Everybody should understand that. But when you go back a little bit to chapter 18, here we read a story that Jesus told about a Pharisee, Pharisee representing the religious group, the in-crowd, if you will, and this tax collector, a publican who represented the out-group, the outcasts, the outsiders. And so this Pharisee, remember, thanks God that he wasn't sinful like this man, this tax collector. Thank you, God, I'm not as bad off as they are. And so the tax collector wouldn't even raise his head, right? And he asked God to have mercy on him, a sinner. And so who did Jesus say based on that? story, who did he say was justified in the eyes of God? Well, it was the tax collector who repented. And so it's like, is that even possible? Think of all the things they've done. Is it even possible for them to to repent? Can they really change? So then we read about Jesus' encounter with a rich ruler, a rich young ruler. He he might as well have said a a rich sinful ruler and completed this oxymoron. That was the intention there. And so this young man comes up and Teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? How can I gain eternal life? And basically, how how much is it going to cost me, because I'm a wheeler and dealer, to get eternal life? And so Jesus said, what? Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and follow me. And then what happened? This young man went away, and he was sad. He was brokenhearted. Because he loved his stuff. And so Jesus told his disciples also that it was going to be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven, to do what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because once your stuff got you, it's hard to get free of your stuff. And so Peter then would ask, so if rich people can't be saved because they look at them like they must be doing things right, they're in God's favor, right? Because look how wealthy they are, how, how they climb this land of society. If they can't get in, Lord, then who can be saved? Who stands a chance? And so Jesus said in Luke 18 and verse 27, what is impossible for mere humans is possible for God. And so perhaps that's what Zacchaeus hoped as he heard the, the, the crowd gathering, all the, the scuttling streets. 
And he went out there. And Luke continues in 19 and verse 3. He says, He was trying to get a look at Jesus. But being a short man, he could not see over the crowd. Now, short is not just what he looked like. Short is who he was. He was a short man. This great teacher then, this healer of the sick and broken, this parade was coming for him, and, and the crowd was gathering to see him. If you've ever been to Silver Dollar City, or you've been to Disney maybe, or if you've been to the, you know, the, the Christmas parade here in town, North Little Rock or Sherwood or Little Rock, you understand, you better get there early if you want to get a front row seat and be able to see clearly. Otherwise, you're going to be jumping or trying to climb up on something or keep sitting on shoulders in some way to be able to see over the crowd. And so most people in our society will, will let someone who's handicapped or, or pregnant or they'll let children or they'll let the elderly, they'll, they'll let them in front where they can see. It's a southern thing. We do that sort of thing down here, right? But in Jericho, and it's in all of this region where Jesus had ministered, the, the blind and the crippled and the, the aged and the young, they were found at the back of the line. They were pushed to the back. They were on the bottom of society's list because they had nothing to offer. Nothing to offer. And so when Luke tells us that Zacchaeus could not see on account of the crowd, it wasn't just because he was small in physical stature. Because as we're going to find out, Zacchaeus was pretty small in social stature too. So the crowd prevented him from getting a look at Jesus. I mean, what, what would Jesus want with this hellbound tax collector anyway? And so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass away, going to pass that way. And so how embarrassing, right? This grown man and, and someone with the authority of the Roman government at his disposal was being relegated to climb a tree in sandals in a robe. Right? That's what he was wearing at this time. So the image is clear. So Jesus comes to this city of Jericho where, where, where you know, the, 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 the name Jericho brings about the image of you know, Joshua fought the battle and the walls came tumbling down. And no, no doubt Zacchaeus had some walls in his life that he was hoping to tumble off. So in his desperate attempt to catch just a glimpse of the passing Savior, Zacchaeus found out that the Savior seeks more than just a passing glance. So Jesus looks him in the eyes and he says, Zacchaeus, you need to come down right now because I'm going to your house. I'm going home with you. And in fact, he says, I must. I must. I must. What a word. Must. Jesus is on his death march to Jerusalem. And if I was Jesus, that would be the only must on my mind. Because I'm, I'm kind of bent so that if I've, got, if I've got a task that I've got to get accomplished, especially something on a deadline, I seem to tunnel in on that. So everything else kind of disappears around me. I don't hear what's going on. I don't see what's going on. I'm focused on getting done what I've got to get done because the, the, the time is ticking. The clock's moving, right? So it takes over my conscience, either till I get it done or till I find out the deadline's been moved. 
But I'm not Jesus, right? Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. He's the Son of God. And so His entire ministry is summed up in the prophecy of Isaiah, which Jesus read as He began His public ministry. And so in Luke chapter 4 and verse 19, we read that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here is Zacchaeus, right? Who needs good news? Who needs liberty? Who needs their sight restored? Who needs freedom from oppression? Who needs to feel the Lord's favor any more in this town than Zacchaeus? And so... I thought about that, and I wonder who needs in your life, in my life, who needs good news? Who needs liberty? Who needs freedom from oppression? Who needs to feel the Lord's favor in your life as much as Zacchaeus? And maybe it's you. Maybe you need to feel it. So you may not be short, but you may be short on joy. You may be short on meaning and purpose to life. Maybe you're short on hope. But in some way, the Lord is, is drawing you to Himself, saying it's time to come down. Come on down. And so He came down quickly and He welcomed Jesus joyfully. And when the people saw it, they all complained, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And it's like, Really? I mean, they weren't all crowding around and following Jesus because he was some stranger in this town. They knew about Jesus. They came out to see this man they had heard about that maybe they had even witnessed at some point. This man who, who, at least for almost three years now, his reputation had preceded him. The healings, the associations, the rumors. Yes, this Jesus receives sinners. That's no secret. But not this one, right? <laughs> Not him. Not Zacchaeus. And those like him. And so the text here would indicate that the crowd didn't get sideways until Jesus, his offer had actually been realized. Until You know, it's one thing to say, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Oh, did you hear what he said? It's another thing when he steps foot inside. And that's what the text lends us to believe. That's when everybody got twisted. They might have got a little bowed up when they heard him make the offer. But when Jesus crossed the threshold, that's when things got real. And so in this time, it was lawfully forbidden for a righteous Jew to mingle with sinners who were outside the law. And so what law? Well, it's the, the twisted, the, the perverted religious law that those like these Pharisees were enforcing. It's how they had come to, 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 to recognize and believe and, and reinterpret the law for their own benefit. But our Lord welcomed Himself into the home of this man. And so this, this, the one who did not denounce the, the, the virgin's womb, the one who was born in a feed trough, right? The one who would die a criminal's death on an old rugged cross, who would be buried in a borrowed tomb. He comes to the lowliest of places, with the lowliest of people, the most detestable lives Jesus invites Himself into. He comes and dines and fellowships and communes with. Which is why He came to me. And He came to you. And He comes today by His Word and by His Spirit to all who will have Him. 
And for some of us, we've got this image of God as the great punisher, the great the God of vengeance and of wrath. And we can certainly see that aspect of God, the way God had handled things and it revealed in Scripture to us, and in the Old Testament specifically, as He was making a path for His chosen people. But if Jesus shows us nothing else about God, it's that God is first and foremost a God of reconciliation. He's a God of reunion. He's a God of restoration. And so He does not leave the guilty unpunished, but He comes first to seek and to save the lost. Even those people. Even them. And so it seems that Zacchaeus heard this grumbling from the crowd and perhaps he, he was afraid that Jesus might hear it too. And if Jesus hears it, maybe Jesus will rescind His offer. But Zacchaeus stopped. And he said to the Lord, look, Lord, half of my possessions I now give to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone of anything, I'm paying back four times as much. And so notice the language here. Zacchaeus isn't saying, Lord, I'm going to make things right. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm going to do better. The original language here is present tense. Zacchaeus is saying, Lord, I'm not who they think I am. I've changed. I give half of my goods now to the poor. And if anyone thinks they've been wronged by me, I repay them. If they've been defrauded by me, I repay them four times. And so Jesus affirms Zacchaeus. Not just to Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus needs to hear and know and feel the Lord's affirmation. But Jesus affirms Zacchaeus to everyone else. And so Jesus says to him, Today, salvation has come to this household because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Because Zacchaeus could not earn his salvation in anyone else's eyes. Zacchaeus could not change his reputation in anyone else's eyes. That's their choice. They have to make that decision. And in reality, he couldn't earn it at all. Not one cent. And so Jesus identifies him as a son of Abraham, a son of faith, a, a lost sheep of the house of Israel who, who perhaps he made some bad choices in the past. Certainly he did. He didn't warranted the scrutiny of the crowd. But now he stands as a recipient of God's salvation. Someone who is in the eyes of Christ Jesus, redeemed, restored, and should be respected. Not because of who he is, but because of who Christ is. See, the crowd in Jericho, in some ways, for us, it's a hard resolution. It's hard to reconcile this. It's hard to, to change the way we think about someone and the way we see someone and the way we act towards someone, even when they say they have repented. That one such as Zacchaeus will be welcomed to the table of fellowship by Jesus Himself. And it's not because of what Zacchaeus had done. It's because of God's grace. It's the grace of God. And not only that, but Jesus would relabel Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has been wearing this mark of, of a hell-bound sinner, an outcast, unworthy. And Jesus relabels him a son of Abraham. He's a son of faith. He's beloved now. He's repentant. He's recognized. And because and by Jesus, He's restored. And so when Jesus 
came to town, Zacchaeus couldn't see him because of the crowd. And now the crowd can't see Jesus because of Zacchaeus, their own prejudice towards Zacchaeus. Now they can't. Jesus must not be who we thought he might be because look who he's dealing with. Look who he's hanging with. They can't see the Son of Man. They can't see the seeking and the saving. And so the same labeling and the profiling and the preconceived ideas that they all had and the history they had with Zacchaeus, all of that now is projected onto Jesus. And so what kind of man is this who associates with sinners? What kind of person would hang out with people like this? What kind of God would go seeking the most despised of of society? I mean, certainly not my God, right? Because here's what's hard. Because if my God is like that, and I'm trying to be more like my God, that's where it's hard. But our God is a restorer. He's a reconciler. He's a seeker. He's a saver. Dr. Richard Seltzer was a surgeon and wrote a book called Mortal Lessons. And so he compiled a, just a lot of lessons he learned in dealing with people who, who had some tremendous physical and, and, and medical um, hurdles that they were trying to, to cross in their life. People he'd been trying to treat and work with. And so one incident, there was a young lady who had a tumor on her face. And so she, she went to him to, to remove this tumor. And so in the process of removing this tumor, he had to cut just a, the, the twig of a facial nerve to save her life. And what it did, though, is left her mouth twisted and, and, and palsy. Her mouth was now paralyzed so that it, it, it drooped in a twisted fashion. And so she asked him, will my mouth always be like this? And he said, yes, it will. Because a nerve was cut. And so she bowed her head and she just kind of nodded. You know, she heard what he said. But her husband was there with her and his eyes never left hers. And he smiled at her and he said, I think it's kind of cute. He said, I like it. And the doctor watched in wonder as this this husband came face to face with his wife and, and he worked and bent and twisted his own mouth so that his lips would meet her lips. And accomplished a kiss to show her that she was still worthy and that their kiss still worked. And when I think of that young wife, I think of this man Zacchaeus, this man whose soul was twisted and tormented by the pain of of a sinful past, brought on himself by choices he had made, a life that he had been living. And when I see the young husband twisting his lips, to, to kiss his wife's paralyzed mouth. I see our Savior, Christ, bending down, condescending Himself to meet Zacchaeus where He was. And I think, is this not the Gospel? Is this not the good news of Jesus? Who on a, a, a dunghill outside of Jerusalem, first century Palestine, this Jesus Christ who knew no sin became sin for me and for you so that we who are sinners might become the the, the righteousness of God through Him. And this one who is unblemished, who became mangled to meet us in our mangled condition, 
Jesus exposed himself to, to, to ridicule and he was blasphemed. And so that we who are rightfully accused, rightfully accursed, naked in our own sin and shame, that we could be clothed and called sons and daughters of the Most High, children of faith. In one of the sermons recorded by Augustine, he writes this, Man's Maker was made man, that He, the bread of life, might hunger. That He, the fountain of life, might thirst. That He, the light of the world, might need sleep. That He, the way, might be tired on His journey. That He, the truth, might be accused of false witness. That He, the teacher might be beaten with whips, that He, the foundation of the world, might be suspended on wood, and that He, the Almighty, might grow weak, that He, the healer, might be wounded, and that He, the life, might die. That's Jesus, the Son of God, bent down to kiss humanity. And as He did, He twisted Himself to meet sinners in a twisted condition. And some of us who are seated here together today, seated in these pews today, find ourselves in reality at the top of a sycamore tree. We've climbed our way up, hoping to get a glimpse, looking, searching, just a glimpse of mercy, and wondering still if we are outside of Jesus' side. But you are not. You are not because He is here. He is present. Our Savior who came for us, who died in our place and yet rose again that we might have life and have it abundantly. He is here today. And all He's asking is for you to come down. Climb down. Come down. And why don't you, in your your heart of hearts, right now, accept His divine invitation because he, He welcomes you and He waits for you. And He will restore you. But see, here's the thing. You've got to turn away. You've got to turn away from whatever led you up that sycamore tree and turn around from that attitude about yourself or that attitude about someone else. You've got to, you've got to turn away, turn around from the way you've been thinking about what's important in life. Turn around from how you've been treating that other person or turn around from how you've been talking about them. Turn around from the way you've been putting your desire for work before and above your, the desire of your family. And turn around from your apathy towards the sin in your life and turn towards resisting the devil. Turn around from your unwillingness to go to the places where Zacchaeus is hide in your life. To look at them with the eyes of Christ and to welcome them and to go where others refuse to go. You've got to turn around from that. Here's the thing, if you find yourself on a train going the wrong direction, it does you no good to walk backwards down the corridor. (laughs) So you've got to get off the train in order to change directions. You've got to take that first step, and that's repentance. That's changing your mind about the way you're living and the way you're acting. And what's most important to you. And change your direction. That's repentance. Just like Zacchaeus had done. And just like with Zacchaeus, Jesus is waiting for you because He's ready to enter your home through your heart. 
and to restore you, to make you whole again. But it's got to start with me. And it has to start with you. And we've got to be willing to change. To put away the, the, the thoughts and the actions and the directions that we've been living. And say, Jesus, You are first and foremost in my life. Because when we do that, life will change. It cannot stay the same. It must not stay the same. And if you are not a child of God, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through Me. So when we are baptized into Christ, we meet Christ at the foot of the cross. We are buried with Him in baptism. Dying to the way we used to think. Living a life now of repentance. As He raises us up to be a new creature. Restored, renewed, refreshed. With the gift of God's Spirit to lead us, to guide us. To prod us, to remind us of what it means to live in Christ. And to walk with Christ. And to receive the gift of eternal life from God. That's what it means to be a child of God. So this morning, what tree are you in? Are you trying to see the Savior? Well, sometimes you're in your own way. Maybe you are preventing your own line of sight. And that takes introspection. You've got to look inside. What about you needs to change today? We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. This is a time that we set aside where we can pray for one another, encourage one another, lift one another up. And celebrate and rejoice with one another in someone's decision to be baptized into Christ. So in this moment, in just these few minutes of singing this song, what is Christ calling you to do? What change do you need to make this morning? Will you make it now as we stand and sing this good song? Whoa.